0: Hi, Spilling Chai listeners, how are you? Welcome to episode four of season two of Spilling Chai, coming to you from Washington, DC. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. I've been a feminist for such a large part of my life, and one of the things that makes me the happiest is when men not only support women's rights, but openly call themselves feminists. One of the most frustrating things I have dealt with in my career is having to repeatedly say that feminism does not mean hating men. Insert massive eye roll gif here, please. Thank goodness it is a new era because not only do men openly identify with feminism, but people are finally getting the message that when women win, everyone wins. Well, our guest today shatters all stereotypes about men embracing feminism and has been advocating for women's rights throughout his career. I am talking about actor and comedian Greg Proops. Gregory Everett Proops is an American actor, stand-up comedian, voice artist, and TV host. He is widely known for his work as an improvisational comedian on the UK and US versions of Whose Line Is It Anyway? He also performed on Drew Carey's Green Show and voiced the title character on the children's show, Bob the Builder. Born in Phoenix, Arizona, and raised in San Carlos, California, Proops attended the College of San Mateo and spearheaded the comedy duo, Proops and Breakermen. Proops was a staple of my childhood growing up in Bangladesh, where in the 90s, Whose Line Is It Anyway? was one of the most beloved shows. And he is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Greg. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm so sorry for the delay. I think you clicked on the old link first. Is that what happened?
1: Yeah, I'm an idiot.
0: Well, as long as I can blame you, that's good. And I know you are so busy, so I'll just get right to it. So one of the things that I love about you is that you are a huge feminist. You talk about feminism and women's rights in your shows and your book, basically all the time. You said once that you believe that the most important issue facing the entire world is women's rights. So you're basically like my dream man. Who (laughs) who were the major feminist influencers in your life?
1: Well, my wife, obviously. My wife, Jennifer hit me to a lot of the, uh, that I might want to change the way I was thinking and maybe reevaluate some of my uh, opinions that I had. Um, also, I'm from San Francisco and uh, you know that has a definite influence on you when you're from the Bay Area. It, it takes a special kind of person to grow up in the Bay Area and not have some kind of liberal tendencies. That would be Tucker Carlson.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the other element is that uh, my father was an awful misogynist and I never understood why. And I feel like part of me wanting to understand women more is that he was so misunderstanding of women and really cruel about it. And uh, I thought, well, you're wrong. And I always thought he was wrong and horrible for it.
0: Wow. Well, you really could have gone the other way.
1: Yeah, I could have. if I'd, my, The problem is I'd probably picked up a few of his beliefs and then I had to get rid of them. You know what I mean? I had to adopt new beliefs because I, he just said the same horrible misogynist stuff over and over again. And it was really grating.
0: Oh gosh! And what? What mother in all of this? Oh, you know, my mother
1: was an enabler. What can I tell you? She, okay. she was a- an internalized misogyny. I think pretty bad because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, she had two sons and two daughters, and the sons were definitely favored. My sisters really didn't get great treatment from my mother, and uh, I don't know what it, I don't know why. You know, she grew up with a million sisters, and she was close with all of her sisters. She just didn't have it in her, you know, to feel for other women.
0: So when you met your wife. Were you completely not a feminist, or did you become a feminist when you married her? When you were dating, how did that happen?
1: Well, that's a a, that's a good question. I, I met her when we were in college, and I was just running wild, you know, getting high and chasing girls and stuff. So I, I wouldn't call myself a super feminist then. When we started dating, yeah, Jennifer always remembers one of our first dates was uh, we went to a an abortion rights uh, meeting in San Francisco, and then uh, a, there was a couple of anti-abortion guys outside, and they in my face, and I—I I think I threatened one of them. That was one of our first dates, so <laughs> I was already—you
0: <laughs> got a by clue. my early
1: <laughs> yeah by my early twenties, uh, I was already supporting a woman's right to choose and putting on benefits for NARAL and Kral up in San Francisco and stuff and.
0: I feel oh, like I most men, a- when, they, when they just have it, I feel like everybody is a feminist. They don't really know. And then when you kind of explain the concept, they're like, yeah, well, of course I agree with that. Uh, I do feel like it's changing with the younger generation, but... Um, I do too. Yes, thank, thank heavens. It's about time. <laughs> um, right? So Yeah, seriously. So Lucille Ball once said, I am not funny. What I am is brave. How would you describe the comedy scene for women? it's still largely thought of as a pretty male-dominated scene and toxic for female comedians. You know, even though we have uh, the success of really big names, obviously, like Tina Fey, Tiffany Haddish, Chelsea Handler, Amy Poehler. Are you optimistic about women achieving equality in comedy? I am. I
1: think it's a very long road. Um, you have to, When I first started in the early 80s, It was so much worse than it is now. It was really male, and it was all my girlfriend is so fat. Women are bitches, you know all that shit. And Mm -hmm. um, those, a lot of those comics have gone by the wayside, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. And there were women comedians. I remember lots of them uh, in the Bay Area, but it was really hard for them, and also. Club owners uh, have a great deal to answer for, I think, in this whole discussion because they carry on being um, horribly misogynist. Sometimes women are forced to live with men in the comedy condo or whatever. Uh, And that's a really awful experience for most women uh, because men are wildly inconsiderate. Yes, I have hope for the future. I personally, in the last few years of clubs, haven't taken any... I've tried to limit the number of men on my show. In other words, um, I demand that most clubs be able to put a feature and a middle on the you know stage that are women. And it's worked out for the most part. Most people are pretty responsive to it. Every once in a while, I run into a club where they're like, we simply can't find two women in our area, yeah. which I would find difficult to believe <laughs> because they're willing to put up men of any quality. And I mean, any quality, mm-hmm. meaning no jokes whatsoever, no act. Yet with women, their standards are way much higher. Also, as soon as there's more women um, programming comedy on television and in movies, that'll open up more. The huge problem is with the gatekeepers always have a say in who gets what, you know? Mm -hmm. I haven't been kept out of much as a man, but because I'm not a sexist pig and I'm slightly, how shall I say it, effeminate, I haven't gotten as much as I could have if I had been one of the boys... And like to go golfing and had kids in a school with another producer and you know that kind of thing, yes. the, way men ne- the way men network. Um, there has to stop being the, if I don't want to um, have sex with her, why would I you know, deal with her yeah. mentality, which I think is really a, a prevalent thing. Uh, having said that, I played in Spokane and Tacoma, which are not exactly liberal enclaves in the last couple of years with all women comedians, and they were all terrific. And the club treated them really well. So, I'm hoping it's changing. But, like I say, I'll go to places and they'll say we couldn't get two women. Yeah. In, in Spokane, they, they had to put a man on the bill to open. And they were just like, we couldn't find two women. And I'm like, you could find two women, you're just not doing it.
0: Yeah. You're not looking hard enough. And how hard can it be? I feel like they say that for everything though, you know, for a panel, for a TV segment, we just couldn't find a woman. This it's just. Right. Cause they
1: don't look because within their sphere of where they go, it's all white guys. And yeah, uh, exactly. you, uh, it, it, what gives me hope is that there are w- lots more co- women comedy superstars than there were when I was a kid. Yeah. When I was a kid, there was literally like Lucille Ball at one point, yeah. you know, Carol Burnett, whatnot, uh, Teddy Fields, Joan Rivers, of course, but now there's black superstar comedians. Yes. that are women, and that headline their own movies, that have their own TV shows, and it, it, representation is everything in uh, the world, politics, but also in entertainment. Yes. If, if you don't see someone who looks like you up there, mm-hmm. then you you really have to wonder why they're being excluded.
0: Yeah, well, you can't be uh, what you don't see, um, as, yeah. they, as they say. So well, you- I mean,
1: the South Asian comics, now there's Russell Peters and- uh,
0: Yes! Uh, um,
1: but that not you don't see a lot of women up there yet in that category, and that's the next thing, right?
0: Well, you've got Lily Singh, you have Hasan Minaj, but yeah, it's really just Lily. I can't think of anyone else, and she's so cool.
1: well. There's Shazam Mirza from uh, London, and uh, you know, but yeah, it's not. It's not the market isn't glutted.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you um, used to live in England. I did. What, yeah, what was that like for you? Because I used to live there. I did my masters at Sussex, and then I worked for a year in, in London. And um, you, were you were you the best looking man in England?
1: <laughs> uh, it's one of my better jokes. I have all my teeth, and uh, my ears are in proportion to my head. Um,
0: <laughs> it's I
1: uh, I was certainly one of the cuter comics in England. Uh, it, it was fun. Um, speaking of sexism, uh, you I you, uh, did nothing as impressive as take a masters there, but English society is wildly sexist. Like they yes. revel in it. Yeah. Um, It's uh, the only places I can think of that were more sexist are, you know, India and and Tokyo and Ireland. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yes, you really hit that on the... You really hit that on
1: the... You know, uh, like, there's such a lad culture, as they call it in England, of the going out with your lads and getting drunk and then that lack of intimacy that English people bring to the table where they, they, they have sex with each other and then they never call each other again. And that's considered a relationship, you know, and they don't even call their wives and, and girlfriends, wives and girlfriends. They call them partners. Yeah. My uh, Jennifer and I've been together for a long time. And when we were in England, they would call, they'd say Greg's partner, Jennifer. And I was like, you know, par- partner's business. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, she yes, yes, she's my partner, but that's not exactly the first word I would use to describe her. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it because it drove the fear out of me. I, not that I was afraid before, but after the first time I came back from doing a tour, of, I went over in like 89 and did sets. And then I, I went over in 92 and I did a tour with a couple of Scottish friends and of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't afraid of anything anymore after that because I thought I'd face down... <laughs> They are a uh, tough crowd. <laughs> right? This, you know, that crowd in Edinburgh, Dundee, Aberdeen, Glasgow, Greenock, Paisley, what
0: Newcastle. That's not in Scotland, but you know, when you go up north like that, they're, t- I mean, I, oh my yep. God, tough crowd. Well, New,
1: Newcastle's tough and
0: Manchester, uh,
1: Manchester, Manchester's ridiculous. <laughs> so I, you know, I did the Manchester Comedy Festival in like 94 wow. uh, or 95. And I, I remember really loving it because of their hard edge. I also remember someone throwing a coin at me and the staging was um, like uh, bleachers. And uh-huh. so you were on the floor as opposed to being up above the audience. Oh. You know, you, you were like amphitheater seating kind of like yes. you were down below. And, and a cor- a pound coin came whizzing through the air. How? Oh, and, so and, um, and landed next to me. Yeah. And I laid into that crowd. And <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I didn't leave, but I yeah. laid into them. And uh, that's th- the other thing that I-, I came to understand about English crowds is they love jokes. They really do. They want you to be funny. They want you to go joke, 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 joke.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but they also love punishment. And um,
0: yes.
1: when they misbehave, I beat the shit out of them and they love it. Um, I remember being on the road once and calling my wife from Newbury or somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she said, and this is on a pay phone. This is how long ago it was on a pay phone. She goes, uh, how'd the show go tonight? And I said, they were assholes and I laid into them. And she went, well, that must've made you feel better.
0: (laughs) Well, good. You know what? That's how it should be always, right? Why should you just take it?
1: The sad part is uh, I believe English crowds um, are still wonderful and marvelous. And I I love playing there, but they're not as intelligent as they were in the 90s. (laughs) When I first got there, there was the definite, you could do more literary references. You could do more biblical references you could reference things that required a kind of an education or some reading. And now it's very much internet driven. The suggestions you get in the nineties, you'd get Harold Pinter and Burkhoff And now you get uh, Tinder and, you know,
0: Oh God, TikTok,
1: that kind of is thing. It's, top, yeah.
0: Do you see that across the world with your uh, audiences or specifically in England?
1: I think everywhere has gotten a, got slightly dumber I, I uh,
0: like that too. The world is dumbing down.
1: And, and, and to put a point on it, I, I don't want to sound like Steve Allen did before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Steve Allen always complained about how dumb the world was, oh, but really? he had this weird sort of white guy empirical thing where like Shakespeare's the highest culture there is and everything follows after that. And I don't believe that. I think that you have to be a little broader than white people world culture. But uh, having said that, we yeah. live in an age where literally in your hand, you have a computer that's more powerful than anything we had in a classroom, the whole of my going to school. And yet, people never ever look anything up. People never research anything. Uh, my wife is a diligent scholar, so when she talks about something, she knows what she's talking about because she studied it. And she'll talk to friends. We have friends who work for the ACLU. We have friends who work for all these different organizations, and they don't. They don't know. They haven't spent any time researching anything, and that blows my mind. Wow. That no one can lack. You know, Jen Kirkman and I was joking about it. Like you go, I'll be in Toledo this weekend, and then you put below it the link, and then the next day you'll write, thank you, Toledo. It was a great show last night. And someone, the next thing on the Twitter feed will be, I didn't know you were in Toledo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When are you in Toledo again? You know, and it's like, I I have a website. I have a Twitter feed. I have an Instagram feed. I have a a, a Tumblr feed. Uh, You know, like, I really, I don't know how much more I can do other than coming to your house and getting you. (laughs) Thank you (laughs) Right? Showing up in your living room. And now we literally are with these Zoom shows. We're literally showing up in people's living rooms. They don't even have to go anywhere. And they still go like what night was that? (laughs) And uh so I find that, you know, hilariously vexing that people really can't be bothered to even and then I think we talked about this last time. Comedy is the only craft that people go see and they make no effort to prepare themselves whatever. Like you would never go out and go, let's just go see music, generically music walk into a country bar and then go, God, I hate this music. And then start yelling at the band that you hate they're playing and you want them to play what you want them to
0: play. Right? Yeah.
1: But comics like it can show up and then heckle you and go, you're not funny and I, you're not doing what I like.
0: Yeah. And it's like,
1: well, f- fuck you. You could have spent two seconds on your phone. You would have found 50,000 videos of me
0: yeah.
1: of all of us. Right. And we all have a giant presence on the internet. Mm -hmm. And then you would know what I do. And then you wouldn't be so unhappy that you came. Yeah, Uh, That's been my, you know, my crusade the last few years to just literally, when people get mad at me in the audience or heckle me to just go like, it's not my fault. It's your fault for being an uneducated idiot.
0: Yeah we want everything delivered to us. And even when it's delivered, it's not enough. So it's just lazy. Right? Yeah. But
1: we wouldn't go, you wouldn't just go, let's go to the movies and then just walk into any old movie. Uh, You would go, I I like uh, this kind of movie or I like a comedy or I like a thriller or whatever. You wouldn't walk in and then start screaming at the screen (laughs) and then going, stop being a horror movie. I want a comedy. People feel super free to yell at you as a comedian and go, you're not doing what I like. And it's like, I have no obligation to do what you like whatsoever. Your obligation is to actually know where you're spending your money.
0: That is so interesting because it's not only they feel like they have the right to yell at you, they have the r- they feel entitled to abuse you. Mm-hmm. So
1: it's- a lot, of, a, a lot of people, because of the way comedy has been presented the last million years of white guys um, fighting with people on stage, a lot of people have the idea that heckling is part of it instead of it's a part that we detest more than anything else. No. There's no way to measure how much comics don't want to be heckled and how much audiences really feel. And reporters, reporters reinforce it all the time. Every time I get interviewed, it's always, "Oh, it's a big part of it, isn't it? Being heckled. And it's like, uh, no.
0: No. No one wants to be heckled. Who wants to be heckled?
1: Well, I mean... Someone described it yesterday, like the way 45's been acting the last few months, uh, you know, completely abrogating himself with responsibility and screaming all the time incoherent shit, that he's basically heckling his own government right now. Yeah. Nothing constructive comes from heckling. Heckling is nonsense, you know? Yes. And so I, I, I've always dealt with hecklers summarily. I will nuke you from orbit and make you cry. And that way, you will not do that again. I, I do a zero tolerance for well, that's it.
0: That's the way it should be. I mean, you have to stand up for yourself. You're basically yep. allowing yourself to be abused, and you're on stage. This is your job, and you're performing. Unbelievable. Um, I know. Oh, well, many people. Funny that you mentioned 45. Uh, Many people, particularly white people, were dismissive of Trump's racism and fascism for so long, even when he was implementing policies like the Muslim ban and separating families at the border in front of our eyes. You were someone who was calling Trump out from even before day one. Oh yeah. Do you think it took white people so long to take Trump seriously?
1: Well, before uh, the plague started, I uh, was saying on stage, things have gotten so bad that white people actually have noticed now. Yeah. And like you say, it took two years of his constant Nazism for them to wake up to the fact that it, it, they were all sold a bill of goods. Part of it is um, white privilege. What do they say? You can't tell a fish that it's surrounded by water. Can't tell a fish, a fish just thinks, yeah, that it's normal. And that's how white people are and their privilege. It's all around us. We live in it. We breathe it. It's part of the fabric of the United States. It was, as they so often overuse on the interweb, it's baked into the Constitution. It's baked into the fabric of America. So I think it took personal suffering and pain. And to be even more specific, poor George Floyd, his tragic slow motion death is what galvanized this this era. As John Lewis said, for him, for the people of John Lewis' age and younger, And older, it it was the Edmund Pettus, it was Bloody Sunday in Selma, but for John Lewis said for him personally, it was Emmett Till's murder and subsequent lynching. Yes. So every generation, there's tons and tons of atrocities being performed every day, but it, it, it takes a slow motion one in front of us for white people to actually feel empathy. And one of the chief aspects that people like about 45, and I do mean this sincerely, is his cruelty and lack of empathy. A lot of white people really like that. And it's not limited to white people. You can go to Brazil, you can go to India, you can go to Hungary, you, can, you know what I mean? There's plenty of dictatorial assholes. The Philippines um, yeah. running countries that aren't white and lots of people like it. Cruelty is the other side of love, I guess. It's just this weird, powerful thing that people feel f- afraid. And because they're afraid, they want someone to act out on their behalf of the people that they're afraid of and hurt them. Yeah, And that's enough. I think for a lot of people, it's really enough. You know, people keep asking when of the senators going to stand up and defy him. The answer is never, never. The answer is never. They're not going to, but well, the ones that have, have done it and they're going to carry on doing it. The ones that aren't, aren't going to do it because the power's more important than people feeling good or anything good happening. Yeah. And that's just, that's a terrible state of affairs. Yeah. I hope that question wasn't too, answer wasn't too long winded. I.
0: Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I'm, God, I mean, I couldn't agree with you. It's so it's so terrifying. Um, yeah, it is. I was actually thinking about how, you know, I, I'm from Bangladesh and I grew up in Bangladesh and we have a lot of uh, mob justice there on the street. And yeah. uh, people just would just, the crowds would just swell of just, you know, spectators watching versus how many people actually intervene to, you know, stop the public beating of someone or, I mean, sometimes the police even watch. So it's just... I was trying to, you know, I fell into this kind of thought of what is the psychology of that, but I guess it's always existed as a part of, it's a part of the human, human existence.
1: I think it is. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people are really comfortable with blanket authority, like the cops or, you know, the army or whatever, and they're willing to just abrogate all responsibility in the face of it, as opposed to calling out injustice when it happens, which is a much more difficult thing to do. Yes. I woke up furious today, of course, because, as usual.
0: The Axios interview?
1: Yeah. I, I, you know, like, you have to put everything in perspective. I'm not sure why the White House is letting him do this, because the last three or four things, you know, the, the Chris Wallace interview, the Axios interview, uh, the Tulsa rally, the crappy Tampa rally the other day, uh, the, the crappy um, here, uh, briefings that he gives where he just lies and says the same thing over and over. Yeah. It's not helping. It's not bringing anyone new in. Yeah. And I think they're underwater with the group they wanted to carry the most, which is why people, I think they're starting to get the idea yeah. that they're, it's over now. It's really, really over. If the election was held today, he would so lose. Oh. And so, oh. you know. The, yeah. Uh, but well, I, I think. think they
0: I think, can control him, right? They don't have any control over him. That's the problem.
1: No. And they, now they we know that he's taking They're drugging out. him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they drug him. They drug him, and they give him IVs. You saw his hand last weekend yes. with the bruises on it. Oh
0: my! God. Um, he Understood. pretends to play yeah.
1: golf. He pretends to give speeches. He pretends to have answers. When he was waving the charts around in the last two interviews, and it's clear that he doesn't actually really know. Yeah. Um, anything about cases, testing, tracing? What does he keep calling them? Medicals and. You know,
0: like (laughs) one of those, uh, one of those charts that he was flying around in the interview. I mean, I tweeted this, but I was like, my three-year-old daughter has more complicated graphs that she reads. Like you you saw them, right? Where it was just like those Mm -hmm. graphs of thick colors. Like what is going on? Well, he can't process information. I think he's really,
1: really far gone and they just want to keep protecting him. And somehow I think they think they can cheat to win again.
0: I think Um, they're totally going to cheat to win again. I don't think he's going to, I'm anticipating the worst. The worst. There's already, I look at DC and there's already a wall he's built around the White House. I mean, I don't think, I think he's going to not accept the results and call it a fraud. Um,
1: Oh, that's for certain he's going to do that. And also remember though, that uh, if, if he doesn't leave office and he's, uh, and has lost, uh, the speaker takes over. So I don't think he can handle that. I think there's two or three scenarios. One is that he splits. um, That would be a dream. You know, like goes to Saudi or something. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Moscow. Another that he resigns because of health reasons or whatever. I could see that happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I could also see the ultimate, you know, where he just, he says the election's rigged. I don't accept the results. In which case we've got a giant situation on our hands. But the other thing my wife always says to me, to reassure me when I panic over this is (laughs) you simply lock him in the white house and move business down the street.
0: That is so smart.
1: Right. That you, is one you, of the best go-
0: suggestions I have heard.
1: Right? You're like he goes I'm not leaving, you're like fine. Wow. Stay. And then we'll we'll, we'll do, yeah, we'll do we'll we'll run the White House out of the Congress or whatever. That because is- like I said if he doesn't leave technically Pelosi's the yeah. president. I don't think he can really hold on to it. Yeah. You know. I, I, also, I think we've seen a lot of flameouts lately like he sent the paramilitary crap uh, DHS uh, ICE pretend police into Portland.
0: Portland, yeah, that was a disaster. So they
1: could shoot reporters in the eye with, you know, rubber bullets and beat on women.
0: Oh.
1: And that didn't work.
0: Yeah. I and mean, then, it really
1: well, didn't work.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you're, whole, from,
1: you're from Bangladesh. You know what a oppressive uh, yeah. government is like and, and how also, they really...
0: I also talk about this all the time, about how when I was growing up, I mean, America would send election monitors to Bangladesh all the time. And now mm-hmm. people can't even vote in, in Georgia. But a lot of people are also saying that this Republican, you know, this mail-in, him trying to cast doubt over mail-in ballots could really backfire because Republicans are really pro that, so.
1: It it already has. I've read two articles in the last two days, one in the Washington Post this morning about that very subject. They're driving away their own voters because Republicans love to vote by mail. Yeah. And they tend to return their ballots at over 90% in some areas. And they're confused now because he keeps conflating absentees with mail-ins when they're exactly the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's such a moron that he's confused the matter so much that Republicans are afraid to mail-in ballots now. <laughs> yes. And um, it's, so there's, there's all that. I mean, you know, Joseph Stalin said, it's not who votes, it's who counts the votes. Well. So there's a, a lot of mountains and rivers to cross. But on the other hand, I think they're so far underwater with white women and I think white women were what pushed him over the goalpost. Yeah. That and the Russia and cheating and Facebook and lots of other things. But <laughs> the fact that white the white women voted for him in a majority was really sad Always
0: educated white women too. It was And I think
1: that, that fifty one or fifty four percent is now not is gone. It's oh. gone. The white women that voted for him last time are not having it right now. Gosh, I hope so. Other than the ones you see in the Walmart parking lot screaming at the employees that they have to wear a mask.
0: The Karens of the world.
1: (laughs) Yes, there's a million Karens out there that are still going to vote for them because (laughs) their internalized misogyny and fear drives them to, I understand. But I think you have children. And if I told you uh, you needed to send your kids back to school right now?
0: Yeah, no way.
1: That message is not playing.
0: Yeah, it's not playing. (laughs) Yeah, no way. So you have created an entire career making people laugh. What or who makes you laugh?
1: (laughs) Uh, My wife, um, uh, old movies. I love uh, Insecure with Issa Rae. I love, uh, um, what's that show? Um, I just blanked on the name of it Random Acts of Flyness. You ever see that on HBO? I have. It's a really black centric show that they were putting on in the middle of the night last year. And it is completely surreal. They mix black history with animation and I don't know that it makes me laugh, but it's it, it, it's funny and fascinating.
0: I'm a big history nerd. I'm going to check that out.
1: Yeah, it's called Random Acts of Flyness. Mm-hmm. And like I say, it's real Black-centric. And you were talking about women in comedy. One of the producers is a woman. You would never have had a show like that on TV before because it's, it's really a psychedelic uh, look at Black history. And I think it's really effective in that regard. They do running gags and... It's almost like laughing, you know, like it's just this surreal melange of stuff. I, it's probably on HBO Go or whatever. Uh, check it out. Uh, and then um, what I really don't laugh at are um, the big p- ticket Hollywood rom-com movies that are supposed to make you laugh. Yeah. I watch them on planes when, before the plague when we traveled all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and the dating movies and the sitcom type movies are just terrible. I, I haven't seen any improvement at all. You know, like I really prefer old fashioned, old time movies because there's more plot and character.
0: Totally. And the the costumes are better. I mean, my mom and I love to watch uh, Turner Classic movies all the time. Everything is just so much better. Those cheesy Hollywood, overstarred, you know, too many stars and overproduced Hollywood, like Valentine's Day or what was that? Yeah. Uh, He's just not that into you. Ugh. Yeah. And, you they're know, not funny. Yeah, they're not funny. And it's like they're. So- and they're really
1: sexist. I watched this Taraji P. Henson one where she could hear what men were thinking, which yeah. was the same plot as the Mel Gibson one from the yeah. 90s. Yeah. And well, I, I couldn't believe how awful it was and how sexist it was. And it was like, I love Taraji P. Henson, and she should be able to star in a sitcom rom-com movie that has some depth to it. And it was like, it, this is just awful. Yeah. She's like this horrible, gold-digging sports agent. First of all, you know, if, if the movie's cast around sports agents, that a guy wrote it. Yeah. you're asking me for the positives I work with uh I'm I'm gonna massacre her last name and she's gonna kill me we've been friends for years (laughs) Daya up in San Francisco Lakshmirianan
0: okay yes I can't pronounce her Uh, last name either but I know you're talking I
1: I massacre it every time she laughs at me because I call her Lakshmirianan and (laughs) on um and it's really patronizing and I've worked with her for years and uh, we'd done New Year's together for years in San Francisco. Um, I was just starting to work with um, a woman who lives in Nashville named Jill Marigas. And um, I've had her come on the, uh, the online, you know, there's online comedy clubs and she yep. a set there with, with me. I was just starting to go on the road with Joy L. Johnson, who is a Brooklyn-based comedian who has, I think, since moved to Atlanta because New York is kind of crazy right now. And yeah, I was supposed to do a gig with her in Rhode Island. I was supposed to do a gig with Jill last week in San Francisco, but of course the world ended. So I've tried to keep them next to me by having them on uh, the virtual shows I'm doing. And they make me laugh. I think they're, as far as admiring people, uh, Liz Winstead, who runs the Abortion Access Front, they go around the country and help clinics out and raise money for independent clinics and stuff. I think she's a comedian. She helped start The Daily Show. She was the co-creator of it. She spent all of her time and influence since then really lifting up women and really pointing out uh, how abortion is a fundamental health issue and how crazy the other side gets about it with their you know purported pro life nonsense. So I think she's a comedian. Yeah, a comedian that I really admire. She's not only she's funny, she's very funny, but she's a comic who's taken her platform and really used it. Yeah. What drives me mad are the amount of white guys who spend all their time talking about ultimate fighting and taking supplements and sports, and just the nonsense bullshit of malehood instead of ever, 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 ever thinking they should use their voice to help anyone else.
0: Yeah, wow. That
1: drives me crazy.
0: Gosh. I mean, I'm not
1: saying I'm better than them, but I'm better than them.
0: <laughs> well, you definitely sound better than them. Well, I mean, you
1: know, why would you, why would you even talk about ultimate fighting or make it a part of your thing if you were a comedian? What's funny about that? I don't get it. And And then why not? talk about what's going on in the world instead of sports and how you feel and shit, you know, like
0: <laughs> exactly. So last question, what are you working on now? What's making you want to spill the tea, spill the chai?
1: Ah, well, uh, my wife and I do a podcast every week called the smartest man in the world. And, uh, that's been a lot of fun because, you know, we sit here and just talk to each other and about music and history and art and literature and politics. And, she does so much research that the show could be like five hours. A week ago, we did one that was like an hour and 48 minutes or whatever. Wow. So we try to keep it down. Like this week, I think it was about an hour and 20, which is sort of more how you know people's attention span. Again, though, we're everybody's in containment, so I think people have time for things. That's really fun. I've got an album that I recorded last year in San Francisco that uh, I talk a lot in the album about white supremacy and how cops are white supremacists. Yeah. In relation to a story I was telling about riots that happened at my white high school in the 70s, and I noted when I was re-listening to it that the crowd goes quiet when I said that the cops were white supremacists, and I called them out on it. And of course, now it's like, yeah. now we're here. Now we're here, where white people actually do believe that, or are starting to believe it, or trying to believe it. So I'm kind of trying to work on the album, but I think, as you know, during this quarantine uh, yeah. quarantino. Everything seems to take a thousand times longer than it used to, even though you have all day to do things.
0: Yes. I don't know
1: what it is. Is it? I don't know if it's the anguish or.
0: I think it's the anguish <laughs> and the containment. Yes, and the fact that you're doing everything over your computer and online. But and um,
1: then I got I got a live show Saturday. Uh, no Work Comedy Club. We're doing the podcast, and then I got another one with Ben Glebe in the two weeks' time. Uh, if you go to, it's all on my Twitter. Yeah, it's website. all on your, I'm
0: going to find out for you. <laughs> There's nothing you want to especially plug right now. Oh yeah, <laughs> the,
1: this, this Saturday Club at the Nowhere Comedy Club. If you go to gregproops.com, all uh, gigs are listed there. I'm going to list some more today. This Saturday is the podcast, the 21st. Uh, ben Glebe and I do a riffing. In September, I've got a stand-up show and a podcast and I'm going to post those dates today.
0: Fantastic. So gregproops.com is the best place to go to find out every, all your latest shows.
1: Yes. And uh, the Nowhere Comedy Club uh, online, if you just type in Nowhere Comedy Club in Google, it comes right up and there's a big calendar there and you can see all the dates. There's lots of comics doing gigs. Uh, I see Todd Berry's there and uh, a bunch, much to their credit, a bunch of women and people of color. So it's a little bit better than an actual comedy club. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I go online and I look at, I was looking at some clubs in the South um, you know, everybody plays to their market. I get it. But when you look and there's like two months of comics and there's no women headliners yeah. or no black headliners, and then you look at the other clubs and there's no white headliners, only black headliners, you're like, wow, this isn't, that is, this isn't as inclusive as it could be. This is not yeah. the big rainbow here.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> this is specific marketing,
0: you know? Wow. Targeted marketing. Yes. Well, Greg, thank you so much. I, you know, when we were growing up in DACA, when, you know, when star plus first came, I mean, whose line is it anyway? Was like, what? I mean, I watched it my whole life, so I still cannot, thank you, uh, I just cannot believe I got to speak to you. So when this episode goes up in about a week or two, I know that just know that a tiny country right next to India, Bangladesh is just going to be freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> well, They're let
1: me know and it. I'll tweet it out.
0: I will. Thank you so much, Greg. And say, give your wife a big high five for me. I mean, I wish I would. She sounds like someone I want to marry. She
1: sounds right. amazing.
0: Yeah. Oh, I got lucky. Oh, sounds like she got lucky too. <laughs> go to well, thank you so much. Take care. Stay safe. Thanks, darling. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. One of the most challenging things about living during a pandemic is whether to follow the news or tune it out. There's so much at stake with the upcoming US elections, the global race for a COVID vaccine, climate change, just to name a few. But in the midst of all the darkness, we must take time to laugh. And if you are struggling to do so, I highly recommend pouring a cocktail and watching Greg Proops shows. After all, isn't laughter the best medicine? If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to follow us on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai.